You are now listening to the Add 10 Gallons Concrete Podcast. Wait, the answer was add 10 gallons? Add 10 gallons. My first thought was we got to put active children. Yeah, great. <laughs> Trucks on the, on the way. On the way. <laughs> yeah, yeah, okay. I've got two observations, uh, neither of which are really educated or well thought out. <laughs> <laughs> Which are like most of my observations are. There aren't a lot of problems on a job site that can't be solved with a sack full of biscuits. Today's episode of the Add 10 Gallons Concrete Podcast is brought to you by Actigel 208. Actigel 208 is a high-performance additive for the concrete industry that is greatly beneficial to the producer. It enables them to increase the percentage of manufactured sand by up to 100% and completely replace all the natural sand in the mix. In areas where natural sand is scarce, inconsistent, and expensive, this provides a huge benefit to any ready-mix company out there. Benefits of manufactured sand and concrete include consistent air content, improved compaction, and increased density. Now in the past, the downside of using manufactured sands was that they were hard to pump, hard to place, and hard to finish. Well, Actigel 208 solves all those issues. By improving suspension, stability, and the quality of the cement paste in the mix, Actigel overcomes the old issues with manufactured sand and leaves them behind. Let Actigel 208 improve the quality of your mix while saving money on every yard you produce. For more information, visit us at actigel.com. That's A-C-T-I-G-E-L dot com. All right, ladies and gentlemen, welcome into the Add 10 Gallons Concrete Podcast. We are on our eighth episode here, um, just getting off the heels of a great episode uh, in episode seven, where we had Dr. Heather Brown on, and um, we talked about a lot of different things, and, and it was all great. The insight that we got from her was was phenomenal, uh, and it actually ties into today's episode. Uh, last episode, we gave Ryan Betts a shout out as our all-knowing concrete sensei, and uh, we have him back, and he's going to drop some more knowledge on us, answer some questions, and kind kind of give uh, his thoughts and perspectives on a lot of things. So we're excited for you guys to listen to that. Uh, but in the meantime, we'll check in with the boys. Paul, what's up, man? What's up, dude? Glad to be uh, back in here after it took us a while to get between episode six and seven. And now uh, here we are between seven and eight. We're giving the people what they want. And that's more podcasts. That's right. Rolling, rolling right along. And so for today's episode, it's a little bit different. And uh, you guys will see this if you go check out Ad 10 on our Facebook and Instagram pages. We have video clips from from various sections of the shows that we use for, for promos. But today, Paul is not in the main studio. Paul is actually at his home studio. Audio seems to be coming in great. And I, I got to point out the fact that I am insanely jealous of your office chair. This thing looks straight out of a race car and and damn it i want one <laughs> it is it is brother so you know you guys are going to be jealous of the artwork in the background uh that, that is custom that is unique uh four-year-old daughter uh, did that over the over the summer so so i got some unique artwork and uh, this racing gaming chair you know you know as i was looking around the summer building the home office because that's what you do during COVID. um you know i was looking at these office chairs and man these places really think a lot about their office chairs based on the price, what they're selling them at. And, and I said, you know, if I'm if I'm going to have to shell out all this money for an office chair, let me get something I'm actually going to like. So, uh, I, you know, I upgraded here and I got something that says I can sit in it for a long amount of time. And when I'm done talking to y'all, I can wheel it into the other room and play Madden until my thumbs fall off. <laughs> and that also that also gives people a perspective about where you are and where I am in our lives right now, because you want to talk about your daughter's artwork on the wall. My eyes are immediately drawn towards your racing chair. <laughs> That's pretty much a synopsis of where our lives are at this moment. <laughs> yeah. yeah, no, well, I, I just had to give the, the shameless plug to my daughter there. Now, the chair is great. And I, you know, I'm joking about being able to play Madden. I, I literally bought the game. I played it twice because by the time. <laughs> We're done working, and I'm done being a parent. I'm tired, and I don't. I, I, those hours in the in the late night, I think the sleep is more valuable to me this time than the enjoyment of playing a video game. Anyway, how are you, Joey? Jeez, are, are you even getting any sleep? That new baby? Yeah, she slept like six hours last night. It was like we slept for a week straight. Talking about video games, I haven't played a football game since NCAA quit making games. So we've been heartbroken about that for like nearly a decade now. But my video game playing has decreased to zero since late August when my daughter was born. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I missed the NCAA games. You know, maybe they got a chance to come back 
because they're uh, willing to pay the kids these days for using their image and likeness. Um, and I haven't played a game since those either. This is my first time, you know, the new Madden game. I got it. And I actually got it. You know, y'all talking about a minute ago how Mus got a, a player, a starter at every position in the NFL. And that's why I got the game is I wanted to go out and play with, with uh, some of these cats, some of these Bama guys that are out there. You know, you know, if Tua Tonga Vailoa is going to be slinging the rock, I should be telling him who to throw it to. You know. <laughs> <laughs> All right, boys. Well, what do, what do we got going on in the world of concrete right now? I mean, it's it's been a while since we had a uh, a current event update. What, what's what's caught your eye in the industry here uh, before we get Ryan Betts on? Because I'm sure he's going to bring us up to date with everything that's going on as well. Oh, yeah. For me, uh, I saw the acquisition was approved and, and went through. BASF sold their chemical company, their chemical division uh, to Lone Star. And that was a really interesting announcement when it came out last year. Last December, it was announced that BASF was going to sell it. And and when you look at what that chemical group is inside of BASF, it's only a fraction of what the business is, right? So it's like 5% of their whole business is the, the chemical, the, really what was Master Builders, right? So right. a lot of people know it as the Master Builders uh, chemical suite. And, uh, and it was bought up by BASF, and now they've sold it off to Lone Star. So who's Lone Star? Well, Lone Star is just a private equity company. So, you know, when I when I see guys that are getting bought up by private equity, I think in flip, you know, that, that in five years it's going to be named, bought by somebody else and named, named something else. So it's interesting to see uh, a private equity company that, that has about $80 billion worth of holdings go out and purchase something like this for $3 billion that you, you got to have a lot of specialists in your, in your organization. And so... BSF didn't just sell a product line, it sold the whole group. So uh, we're looking at like 7,000 employees have gone over and are now uh, operating under the same uh, name, it looks like. They're going to keep that construction chemical, that BSF name for now. Uh, so it'll be interesting to see if they get uh, relabeled as something else as they go forward uh, with the Lone Star Group. A major, major acquisition of a big player in the concrete world. Yeah, that, that's interesting. And, and a lot of times you would assume and, and, and you know, th- there's so many variables there when you're talking about private equity firms buying companies and, and the reasons are always to make money. Right. I, I'm assuming and correct me if I'm wrong, I'm, I might be ignorant in this. Is there a ton of margin in concrete chemicals? Well, I mean, that's that's not really our our main business or whatever, but uh, not not typically. Uh, you know, th- there's enough to. There's enough to run it, but it's a, it's a volume business. You know, you, you want to go out there and get, get the best bang for your buck, but it's a volume business. But it actually makes a little bit more sense what we've seen in the industry trends recently. So if you go out in the marketplace right now, in most places over the last two years, the cost of BASF additives versus their competitors, uh, specifically uh, Grace and Sika, it seemed that BASF was always higher priced. So why, why are they not challenging a little bit more on the price. Why are they? Why do they decide to remain high? And and one of the interesting things is uh, if you're looking to be sold, uh, you're trying to prove that value. And so if you're going to get sold to private equity, you want to show higher price, you know, higher priced items and higher margins as you get sold. So they they may have been in keeping their prices inflated rather than come down and competing with their competition due to the sale. So I would look going forward, I would look for a master builder suite of products to actually come down in price. Now they've got their new owner, they may come back down and want to get back into the volume game and, and, and step up their volume and, and compete in these places. A lot of these major metro areas, they've lost uh, business, they've lost volume. And that may have been strategic at the time as they were for sale, but now they've been bought. They may get back in the field and you're going to see these experts and they got some good ones over there. They're going to be coming back in and being more aggressive with their pricing strategy. What do you think, Joey? No, I think these moves are, you know, just pretty current with what we see in the industry all the time. There's mergers and split ups and everything else. It's I think right in line with everything else that we see. I'm not really surprised. We'll see more and more things like this. There'll be guys getting out of the admix, and there'll be guys that are acquiring admix companies. There's still those big companies, you know, those, you know, the Sika, Grace, and BASF. Those, there's always going to be those big guys that are just consolidating and trading whatever is going to make them money. Yeah, yeah, and this fits inside of Lone Star's business, so it's not, you know, you're not like it's not a complete outlier that. 
Um, it's coming in from out of nowhere and has no idea about construction and construction materials. They do. Um, but it's, it's interesting because in the world of uh, private equity, uh, some things are more valuable than others. And when you get into the construction market, you know, what you can sell a construction chemical company for um, doesn't have the same returns as, as other things. It can be a little bit lower on that end. So to see a guy like Lone Star come in and, and you know, there, there's got to be something they're seeing behind the scenes on the R&D side. Uh, that has got them real excited. So that's got me excited. You know, I'm gonna, I'm interested to see what they're going to come out with and see how aggressive they're going to be uh, gaining this market share as we move forward. What about you, Joey? What are you seeing happening out there in the world these days? I found an interesting article about uh, we all know about the wildfires that are going on out in California. Uh, they seem to happen pretty frequently these days. But the uh, the city of Los Angeles is putting a motion in to increase the uh, construction of concrete housing. It's something you would have thought they would have done before, but I guess since these wildfires are becoming so prevalent that they're uh, increasing the like I said the construction of concrete housing. They're wanting to use more non-combustible materials and uh, build more structures that are only like four to seven stories tall. So I thought that I don't I just thought that was really interesting that. These wildfires have become so prevalent that we're having to change the way we build housing out in that part of the world. It's almost it's I liken it to um, housing along the Gulf where hurricanes and storms and everything are blowing things over every year or every other year that you're just going to have to start building things to withstand all of that stuff. Um, And uh, around these highly populated areas like Los Angeles, that's a. That's uh, that's gonna be pretty costly, you know, to rebuild houses every other year that are getting burnt down. So they're making the right move by making everything out of concrete. I don't know why they didn't do it before. Cost, the cost is a thing. So if you go back and look in the last couple of years, there's been a massive push by the timber industry to make everything stick built. I mean, everything, even like high rise construction, they wanted it all to be stick built. And the concrete industry is coming in saying, well, we can't do that. The R value is just not there. These things are not resistant enough to fire. And not only that, if one catches fire, it's too easy for the next one to catch fire. So you end up, if you had all your high rises made out of, uh, you know, timber, uh, then they're all going to catch fire. So the concrete industry and the steel industry have been saying for a while, like you can't do this, can't do this, can't do this. But out there on the west coast of the United States, exactly where you're talking about, Joe, these wildfires, uh, they've actually been phasing out concrete and moving toward these stick-built uh, things because the, the the timber lobbyists have come in and, and really done a phenomenal job uh, convincing these legislators that, that everything needs to be built out of wood. And so this is an uphill fight uh, for the concrete industry, who kind of I think they got caught off guard a little bit. They didn't realize timber was going to make that kind of push on the legislative side. And so now they're having to come in, and it was a bit of an uphill battle. And then these wildfires hit like we've never seen. And now the concrete guys are coming in saying, look, we told you. They're trying to fight on the legislative side, and that's what you're seeing there in Los Angeles. And hopefully they come to their senses and they put in uh, you know, some of these mandates so you can't just stick build everything. You've got to have this concrete to protect these people. Another thing that they're dealing with out there um, is the lack of, I think, prescribed fire. Uh, and I see it a lot because I'm tuned in to hunting and, uh, and the environment and everything else. But prescribed fire is a great fire prevention method in that, let's say you have you have a large expanse of woods that nothing's ever been done to it for the last you know 20 years. You're going to have a lot of big trees that they're dumping leaves every year. You have this leaf litter on the bottom of, of, of the forest floor. And then you have dead limbs and you have dead trees that have fallen over. And so you have a lot of basically fire fuel on the ground. And so it, all it takes is a little spark, a cigarette butt, and those leaves all catch fire. Then that catches the dead, you know, the dead uh, lumber that's all on the floor, catches it on fire. And, and now you have this raging fire going everywhere. And prescribed fire, like every four years, prevents that from happening. You get rid of the leaf litter that's built up. You get rid of all this stuff that's on the forest floor. And instead, you have basically green shrubbery coming up from the the freshly burned ground because there's no leaf litter blocking the sunlight from hitting the ground so you have this clean slate and it's actually very good habitat for wildlife and they the twra or tennessee wildlife resources agency uh here in our state 
they pres- they do prescribe fire on all kinds of public lands across the state for habitat and for fire prevention. So I I think the maybe the political landscape in California uh, there's people that think oh if you're if you're harvesting timber if you're cutting doing select cut timber if you're doing all these things to this land then you're you're doing something that's detrimental to it. Well, in fact, it's the opposite. That if you manage habitat, if you manage these expanses of uh, forest for fire prevention and wildlife habitat, I mean, you're helping each other. And I don't think that's that point has come across yet over there, and that's why they have all these wildfires. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Good point. And and I want to bring it back to the uh, financial side of things. I'm looking at some statistics here uh, right now. Looking at the more popular um, types of, of timber that you would use for building, uh, southern yellow pine being number one usually, that right now they are 49% higher than where they peaked at in 2018. That was the highest price timber ever was, was in 2018, uh, sometime in the middle of the summer. And where we are at right now, we're 49 times higher than that point was in 2019. I mean, we have absolutely shot up since May. And I'm, I'm starting to read a little bit and try to understand why. And they don't really they don't really reference the wildfires or anything like that. They reference the stronger than expected housing starts um, during this time right now. And we had Dr. Brown on and uh, and she said, you know, the civil market is is a little bit weary, but that the residential market, the housing market, it, it never stopped. I mean, they're still building houses. They're still going strong which is surprising to me and, and, you know, surprising to a lot of people that I talk to, but nevertheless, they're building houses, whether they got people to buy them or whether those people that buy them can pay for them. Who knows? Who knows what's around the corner there, but they're building houses. So that, and then there's also capacity and supply chain adjustments that need to be made due to COVID and things like that. And then market speculation is driving uncertainty um, as, as I just alluded to, but because of that, yeah, man, the, the price of timber is absolutely sky high right now. So maybe, I mean, that kind of helps us in, in a way to, to keep that residential market going, but also implement more concrete into those housing startups. So, you know, hopefully that keeps the, the concrete industry going a little bit longer, a little bit stronger during during these COVID times. Yeah, you know, Joey, I, I agree. It's, it's a shame that the controlled burn um, method of forest management become political. It shouldn't be a political issue. It should be a health of our, our nature issue. So hopefully people can set that aside and, and look at the facts. Proper forest management could go a long way from reducing the severity of those fires. And uh, and Josh, what a wild statistic about the lumber prices. That's absolutely incredible that they've shot up that high. And, and i tell you where it's been kind of big for concrete. Joey mentioned a minute ago, it's uh, construction on the Gulf of Mexico. You're getting a lot of hurricanes. You've seen in the news just hurricane after hurricane, tropical storm just pounding the Gulf. And uh, concrete, homes built with concrete are the ones that that stand up to that the best. And one of the things that's helped concrete uh, homes being built, one of the things that's helped is the insurance companies have stepped up. So in the state of Alabama specifically, the insurance companies say, hey, if you build your home to this certain level of strength, then you get a deduction on your insurance bill and you basically pay like no homeowners insurance in fact get money back i mean it gets pretty pretty incredible what kind of deductions you can get and and the way you do that is building through strength and building your house out of concrete because now the insurance company is not going to have to come and and fix it or repair it uh, when these major hurricanes come through yeah no i mean that that helps everybody if you spend the money in the front end and you're not having to rebuild your house every year every couple years i mean not only does it help the insurance company that they don't have to send out an adjuster and all that kind of stuff but also what's your time worth to you because if anyone's had to rebuild a home or uh, file an insurance claim it's not a next day or same day thing it takes a long time to get your money back out of your insurance company by design i'm sure but yeah, you, you don't just have a hurricane come in, level your house, and then rebuild it the next day, the next week, the next year. I mean, it, it takes a long time. So uh, hopefully people are starting to see that you get what you pay for. And if you spend a little bit of money up front, then uh, you'll be left standing. That's exactly right. And then my point to further that into the wildfire thing is that maybe legislation is just one part of it. Maybe 
maybe there needs to be some incentives there for the insurance companies to come in and, and model what they've done with the hurricane, you know, building to withstand hurricanes, and then out there you can build to withstand wildfires. If you do that, then you know you can get as as the homeowner, as the building, you can uh, get some credits back, and it'll work in your favor financially as well as practically. That's that's enough financial and, and political talk for now. If you guys don't mind, we could get back into talking about concrete, and we have the perfect guest to do that today. We have Ryan Betts coming back on the show. If you didn't listen to episode one, uh, you need to go back and listen to that because he, he drops some knowledge there, and um, he's got a lot of experience. He's got a lot of history within the industry, and he's very respected within the industry, as we learned from Dr. Brown in, in episode seven. So we'll bring that up to him, see, see what he feels about a shout-out that he got in our last episode, knowing ryan's humble nature he'll he'll probably uh not like it <laughs> but but uh but he got the shout out nonetheless and it's well deserved and we're really excited to talk with him here and uh without any further ado this is episode eight's guest ryan betts from argo cement well, what's going on ryan thanks for coming back brother man good to be back how's it going that's good what have you been up to lately man last time we talked we, we really, really went through Portland limestone cement. We're trying to get uh, the word out, trying to understand from you what the differences were. You did a great job explaining that. Uh, I heard some people uh, in the audience that are listening called and contacted you about Portland limestone cement and to get more information on that. Got any updates as far as uh, PLC goes for the industry? Yeah, absolutely. If uh, The biggest thing going on uh, as far as PLC goes is we're Portland Cement Association. The cement industry is sort of wrapping up the uh, the process of, of getting DOTs uh, on board and approved. And now we're kind of thinking about the, the hurdles from the commercial uh, side of the business, the, the concrete producers as well, some of the challenges and concerns they may have. So actually the, the Portland Cement Association is doing a concerted effort to, uh, to ramp up marketing. Uh, and they've even created a website, uh, greenercement.com, um, as, as a platform to sort of showcase the various different aspects of, uh, of, of 1L Cement. And as you can guess by the, the web address, it's, it, it focuses a lot on the uh, sustainability and the green aspect, uh, low carbon aspect. So. No, that's, that's awesome. Is, uh, is it just the 1L Cement that they're highlighting on that website? Are there other cements that they're highlighting on, on the website? I mean, at this point, it's 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 one L cement, and really the big message is is that if you want to reduce your your, your CO2 by 10%, uh, this is a great way to do it. That's really the big message, but it's also highlighting some different projects, various types of projects from municipal to big commercial projects where it's being used, and and also features a calculator that uh, you can put in certain aspects of of, of a concrete mix design and and see what the the, the CO2-related uh, outputs are. Nice. Now, where where do you personally fit into this whole uh, process and situation, Ryan? I mean, I, I'm sure you're on the technical end, but when you talk about where you guys are now in the process, about looking to go commercial, talking with producers and uh, finalizing things with DOT departments, where do you fit in with all that? So, uh, well, a number of different ways. Uh, obviously, the biggest part of it's technical. So, I'm part of a... a, a some different state uh, organized groups where uh, we initially were tasked with presenting this uh, concept to DOTs. Uh, now that we've won a lot of them over, there's a, there's a few uh, holdouts there, but they're getting close. Uh, we've retooled those teams to start thinking more about looking at people, uh, companies that are building lots of things. Uh, you know, think of the, you know, the Amazons, the, I don't know, Chick-fil-A's, uh, you know, and thinking about them being where they're located and, and, and having people sort of present to them to look at their specifications, make sure they're friendly to allowing for 1L cements. And the other part of it is there's a there's a uh, uh, more of a, say, an industry-wide or national approach as well, uh, from the website uh, to um, doing things like working with some some very big entities like the Corps of Engineers or, or some other folks that we need to be in front of and, and, and sort of educating them about one else cement addressing concerns they may have about other aspects of, of, of the concrete like durability. So, well, I mean, you can probably admit that you're a concrete nerd like we are. In this process, what has been your uh, I guess most enjoyable aspect? What did, what did you enjoy the most about working uh, with this project? 
Well, I think ultimately, I think it, it's changed. I, th I think the, the biggest thing that I'm excited about is realizing the potential and sustainability in, in, in reduction of environmental impact that this initiative has. If you think about the amount of tons of cement that are consumed um, in reducing CO2 by 10% and, and, and even a, a fairly large amount of that, not even all of it is, is massive. It's a great opportunity and it's something that uh, I'm hoping that we we have a lot of success with and and, and leads to uh, real impact for the future. Well, as you heard on our last episode, we referenced you as one of the experts in the world that we call that we're looking at. How'd that make you feel? <laughs> Uncomfortable. <laughs> I'm, I'm glad that you guys think I'm going to live to be 65, though. That was, I appreciated that. We just assumed that you would retire one day. We know it's probably not going to be a 65, though. We're thinking uh, maybe the Vegas line would be set at 82. What do you think? I don't know. But I think the way that I want to go is like Lord of the Rings style, just every, just randomly get onto a ship and sail off into the sunset. That, that's that's the way I want to do it. Nobody I ever thought hears that from was, me again. I thought that was Gary Knight style. <laughs> well, yeah, Gary will be on that ship, too, hopefully. Yeah. <laughs> 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 yeah, his, his it wouldn't be it wouldn't be a good a time if he sailboat. wasn't yeah literally a sailboat uh, heading up the the atlantic seaboard yep that's it so what other projects y'all got going on man uh, uh you know atlanta's a pretty busy place and even given the covid situation in 2020 y'all really hadn't slowed down a whole lot so what are the big projects you're seeing uh, right now any challenges you're facing that you're trying to overcome Sure. I mean, the, the, the real challenge is, is, is running a business and doing it in a, in a safe way um, in this environment. The, 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 the demand is there for concrete. The demand is there for cement. You know, in the kind of work that, that, that I do, that, that we do, it, it, it's beneficial to be, uh, have face-to-face -face contact. We're having to sort of pick and choose and, and be smart about how we do that. But um, you know, there's there's a lot of there's a lot of excellent things going on out there. Um, you know, uh, there's some obviously a lot of things going on in Atlanta. Um, there's you know North North Alabama is just just on fire uh, with the, uh, the the Mazda Toyota plant and all the all the other things going on up there. That's that's a huge deal, big market. But uh, but yeah, there's I think probably one of the bigger biggest projects that I'm involved with, or at least somewhat involved with right now, is the, the Hampton Roads Bridge Tunnel Project. We're supplying cement uh, and slag cement to that project, and it's a it's a pretty big deal. So when you have these big projects, one, one of the things that happens, it always happens in the concrete world, is things go wrong. And when things go wrong, they're all, everybody's want to point fingers. Oh, it's this guy's fault. It's this guy's fault. And the first guy they always point at is the cement producer. Oh, it's the cement producer's fault. So when you're on these big projects and they point at you and they say, hey, uh, your cement is causing us problems, uh, what, what do you do to rectify those situations? How do you, how do you calm those people down and, and what kind of uh, work do you do to assure them that it's not the cement's fault? Well, that's a that's a great question. It uh, I don't think I don't know that there is any any exact right answer or template, but but uh, it's it's very dependent on uh, what 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 types of problems they're experiencing, what uh, what the uh, what the urgency is of of resolving the project or the pro the problem for this project. Uh, sometimes there's just things that are causing irritation. Sometimes there's things that are causing crisis and and you can't move forward. So, um, you know. You always have to you get into these situations and because of the what's at stake um, and challenges, the other challenges that, that, that everybody faces, you, you have to sort of try to be the person who gathers the facts, does the analysis and tries to put the, the emotions and the tensions aside and try to figure out what is the root cause of the problem. And usually what you find out on these things, it's a number of, of different contributing factors. It's not always just one thing, which is, which is why it's, it becomes very frustrating. Yeah, that, that's easy to say to take the emotion out of it. But when old boy's cussing you out on the phone and uh, wants, to know, <laughs> wants to know why things aren't working right, yeah, I had a, I had an experience uh, early on in my career where where uh, we were doing a, a Lowe's in the Midwest, supplying concrete to it, and the test guy had been out on this job over and over again, and I, and I realized that he wasn't using his air meter, and that he was just asking me what I got and putting it down uh, on his report, and and so I get a call that we had 
trucks that were out of compliance with air. And I thought, this guy doesn't run air. Maybe he doesn't even know how to run air. And so uh, I get out there and, and I ran a test and I said, told uh, project manager, this, this concrete's perfectly fine. This is within the air spec. And, and he said, well, you tested with his meter. I tested with his meter. Anyway, long, long story short, the guy kind of made it, the testing guy kind of made a fool of himself. And, and my reward for pointing out that either the guy didn't know what he was doing or uh, his meter was not functioning or, or both was that he got about two inches from my face and started screaming at me. Um, and I just sat there and, and, and let him say his piece. And I said, okay, well, uh, then we're probably going to go ahead and conclude this day. We're not, we, we can't supply concrete that's going to meet your, your specifications uh, under these circumstances. And the guy said, fine, you know what? Just pour the concrete. And they did. And he came back afterwards to our sales guy and said, boy, I really, I really tore that guy up, that young QA guy up, but he stood his ground. And I, I, I appreciate that. But yes, understand I had to do what I had to do too. <laughs> so yeah, I didn't want to appear weak or wrong. And that's, that's messed up. Good, good on you for not just jumping back at him and wringing his neck. Nope. Uh, yeah. And I mean, that's, that's a good way to get into a fight. And I, and, and I've been close to those before on jobs too. If you've spent enough time on projects, especially being a technical person, uh, a quality uh, QA person, you, you you tend to find people who who become disgruntled with you very quickly. Yeah, Dr. Brown was just talking about that on episode seven. But, you know, being able to diffuse intense situations uh, is a skill set, and uh, not always a skill set that uh, the people on the job site have. So it was interesting hearing a story from you that uh, you know how did you do that, and your answer was not to react. But you also brought up something that we talked about in episode three. Jim Casilio. And in the state of Pennsylvania, they have an issue where the uh, on-site testing crews uh, aren't properly trained. They uh, they don't have any kind of certifications from ACI or any, any accreditation from anywhere that says that they know how to run the tests. They were they were just shown by, you know, whoever at their company uh, is typically run the test, has trained them. And you don't know if that was correct or incorrect. And so in the state of Pennsylvania, they're actually pushing to have legislation written that makes it so that anybody testing concrete has to have an ACI certification or they're not allowed to test concrete. Uh, are you seeing any kind of push like that in the state of Georgia or, or Alabama, these places where you're frequenting? Oh, yeah. I mean, if there's if there, I had a, a very big customer of mine, ready mix customer of mine round up all of his admixture and cement and every technical person he could find that, that he bought uh, materials from to make concrete and says, I have a problem. It's testing labs. Uh, we just we just had a big project and it costs us all this money and we've decided we're putting our foot down. What what can you guys do to help us? And I said, uh, you, we need a bigger we need a bigger army here. Um, because it's a very difficult uh, challenge in, in this particular customer. And I will say that I, I very much respect them for the decision they made, but they got all of their people certified, uh, their salespeople, anybody, anybody, uh, anybody, any driver that wanted to be uh, ACI level one. And, and when they had a representative on a job site, whether they were in sales or quality or whoever, um, and, and there were samples of concrete being taken, they would pull out their notepad and they would start taking notes about the way they sampled it, the amount of time it took them, about the state of their equipment, what did they do with their cylinders. And they would, they would send that to their, their central quality control group, their, their corporate quality control group, and their quality control group would say, okay, this warrants us writing a letter. And before they ever had any breaks back, any that were good, bad, or indifferent, they would issue a letter to the contractor and to the testing lab saying, we, we reject these results regardless of how they turn out because this and this and this and this was not followed. So hence, they were not done according to standard, which is a pretty big stand to take. Yeah, that's a pretty bold move. Uh, you know, kind of did the same thing here in Pennsylvania. They, uh, they just had um, 125 different uh, field observations done uh, over the course of two months in the summer of 2020, uh, keeping an eye on the, uh, the the testers there and and noting what did you see, good, bad, or indifferent. And like 100, 120 out of the 125 reports showed some kind of error that the testers were making on these projects. And 
that that just blew me away, man. Because concrete testing ain't hard. You know, it's not it's not rocket science. So you know, what is it? Do you have any insight for us, Ryan? Like, what what is it that keeps people from uh, being able to do this work uh, correctly? So so early in my career, I, I I was in the Midwest working for for a producer, concrete producer up there, and I would get so frustrated because. A lot of my 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 efforts were put into sort of mopping up these things, addressing issues, uh, rebound hammers and Windsor probes and coring, and you know you find out everything was okay or or in that kind of stuff, and and a lot of stuff being ignored that you say, well, we saw them do this, we saw them do that, and they would say we don't care, it's not compliance, um, and so I had a, a newspaper clipping that I had hanging on. My, my my office on my wall. So every time I stare at my laptop, my computer screen, I would see it and it was a want ad. Um, and it was for a local engineering and testing firm. And it essentially said, we're looking for, for, for field technicians, no experience necessary. So I said, well, that's what I'm dealing with. Uh, a lot of no experience necessary. And these people didn't go to college. They didn't, uh, they didn't necessarily maybe even finish high school. Um, they're just people that that they found in the want ads and and train them enough to maybe possibly enough to 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 justify sending them out onto job sites on their own. So um, what I found that worked the best is is to work with work with these people. Um, they don't necessarily intend to do the wrong thing. They just sometimes don't get the guidance they need. And because that business is a very competitive business, and and you have to uh, you have to work with with very low overhead uh you tend not to get a lot of uh you know if you're not getting billable hours uh then then you're not really making any money off of somebody so it's all about the billable hours type of thing so um working with them and educating them and just continuing that process and having a relationship with them is, is the only it to me is the only way to really address it without taking some some incredibly major steps like legislation and things things of that nature yeah well you know more training you know what that's interesting you're talking about uh, working with them because uh concrete sites aren't the most forgiving sites you know there's a bunch of hard people walking around at rough yeah. rough customers and it's not a, not a place where people are going to want to hold your hand and give you the time necessary to to bring you along and, and make you an excellent uh, whatever you know and joey I, I think you had first-hand experience with that your first job out you know you you had to put up plants and run trucks. Uh, you know, how did you handle that? How did you how'd you end up becoming proficient in those things? You just said it. You learned on site and you learned the hard way. A lot of those guys that were on those kind of jobs weren't very good teachers. They just had the experience. They didn't really know how to properly teach someone. You just had to watch and learn and learn from your mistakes, which were many and uh, sometimes pretty intense, you know. I never ran a loader before or any of this heavy equipment and they put you on it and that was your on the job training and you just went along with it. Um, I'll take it back. I had run a loader in my internship, but it was just a small, small loader. It wasn't one of these big cat loaders that you see everywhere. So that was some getting used to, you know, growing up on the farm, running equipment there helped me out a lot, but a lot of people don't have that previous experience. They're thrown straight into the fire you know, and missing the frying pan, so to speak. Some people, you know, they get lucky and they get on the job and they hit, they they have these guys or have these people that show them how to properly do things. And then other times you're just rolling with it. Like we made concrete beams and we made, I don't know, oodles of those all the time. I'd never really batched concrete before. And we did that on the, on the reg and, uh, I just had a lot of throwaway mixes, you know, when I was batching concrete, but I eventually got the hang of it and was able to send some stuff out. But it's just on the job training, and that's that's what a lot of people end up with. Yeah, I will, I will say on the job training, um, you know, there's a, a risk-reward factor there for sure because when you mess up, sometimes you mess up big. But it's also the best way to learn in a lot of cases. But I will say in some of the jobs that I was a part of, even, you know, Back when I was younger in in high school, over the summers and things like that, I worked on masonry crews and construction job sites. And yes, Joe, I even worked on an asphalt paving crew one year. Hopefully, we can still be friends. But uh, <laughs> I, I feel like those tough customers are on every job site. 
and, and they don't want to tell you everything. They want to tell you when you mess up. They don't necessarily want to take the, the 20 or 30 minutes to tell you how to do it right the first time. But if you show an initiative, a work ethic, uh, if you're tentative, and if you only mess up once, I, I feel like they'll be a little bit lenient with you. It's when you mess up two, three, four, five times, that's when they start to get uh, a little bit irritated with you. And that's, and that's when the confrontations might arise. But with with that being said, I think one of the issues on on job sites today, going back to to Ryan's point of no experience necessary, there, there's such a void of available help on these job sites where if someone messes up three, four or five times, you got to keep them because there's no one in the till. You can't fire that guy and go pick up another guy the next day. It's so hard to hire and retain people nowadays where I think, you know, that's one of the biggest issues is, you know, not only do you have to overcome, <laughs> you know, uh, an undereducated, uh, you know, worker on your team, you have to overcome, you know, that person not getting it. You have to find a way around that. Uh, what, what are you seeing on the job site, Ryan? Is, am I on the mark with that? Oh, yeah, no, absolutely. Absolutely. And, and I think that, you know, I had a, a boss that, brought me up and he said, you know, being the QA guy, he said, you're the person at this operation that has to think about the things that nobody else does. He said, the big things, typically they take care of themselves. We're all focused on them. I want you to focus on the small things that can cause problems. And, and, you know, that's, that's a big part of it is, is, is training people to, to, to not just, just look past things and, and assume that those little things are all going to just take care of themselves because those are the things that cause the problems. Um, typically they cause the big problems or can cause the big problems. The issue is the reason why we don't is because most of the time they don't cause problems. Uh, poor testing doesn't always cause problems. Um, poor workmanship doesn't always cause problems, but when it does, it can cause major, major problems. One thing I'll add to Josh's comment a minute ago about the lack of labor and people to fill those roles um, as proud as I am of the CIM program and everything that, that that program has done for the industry, that's incredible what they have done. But I think the lack of workers for those, you know, those labor positions and some of these some of these other positions, these field positions, um, I think those are pretty pivotal. And I think maybe sometimes we push college and we push some of this stuff on on high school kids, maybe too frequently like oh look at that guy digging that ditch if you don't if you don't go to college it's what you're going to end up as um i think maybe we sometimes we get a little too harsh for that uh because we need those blue collar we need those entry level positions to be filled and we need quality people for those jobs we need to teach i think we need to teach kids that yeah they can start at an entry level and you can work your way up and you can have as good or even better experience than somebody that went to school for four years and started at a mid-level at a mid-level job. I think more and more those are becoming harder to fill. And we see that with our customers at these block plants and ready mix plants. They have personnel issues and they're like, well, you know, we can't find anybody to work for us. We can't find anybody to show up on time and pass a drug test. It's like a holy grail nowadays. If you can find somebody to show up on time and pass drug tests. Yeah. So, Maybe we push we push some of this stuff on kids too hard and we don't reinforce the fact that hard work can get you, uh, you know, farther than you may have thought it could. Yeah. Yeah. hundred percent. And that, that's a delicate balance, you know, with level positions and growing that into a skilled labor position and people coming from a source of secondary education directly into the skilled labor positions. I mean, that, that's certainly a delicate balance, and, and uh, there's a necessity for both, I would say. But you touched on a pet peeve of mine, Joey. The negative connotation towards blue-collar entry-level work is just absolutely infuriating to me. And when that was when that was started and how it cultivated in what it is today, I'm not 100% sure on how that happened or, or even why, but it, it's, it's a fact, and it is certainly annoying. Yeah, and Dr. Brown brought up a good point last uh, week, too. Uh, she mentioned one of her students, you know, during all the COVID stuff and you're having a remote, you know, your remote uh, classwork and all that all that stuff. 
uh, one of her students got a job just like sweeping floors for a builder. And you may not think of anything about it. Yeah, he's just sweeping floors. What kind of experience is that? But on his resume, he's got that he worked for a home builder for X amount of time. And, you know, he can expound on whatever he saw, experienced and everything like that during an interview. But on his resume, he's got on there. I worked for XYZ Home Builder for X amount of months, you know, while I was in college and blah, 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 blah. That's going to get him or her in the door at, uh, you know, no telling where just because he's got that on just because they've got that on there. That's experience. You know, we we like to make uh, we like to joke about all. I need experience for this job, but I need the job for experience or, you know, that's exactly what that is. Yeah. He's that person sweeping floors, but he's got that. He's uh, got experience on his resume. Ryan, did you ever have any entry level positions like sweeping floors? Oh yeah. I've had all kinds of them um, and, and enjoyed them all. I started out, I think when I was, I don't know, 12 years old, I, I, I live in a, in a, in a deposit state you know, for, for bottles and cans. And so I went down to a local uh, grocery store and I said, do you, can I, do you have any work for me to do? And they said, sure, go sort these things out because people bring them back and get their 10 cent deposit back. It's, it's a really fun system, but uh, no, I mean, I've, I've worked the grill at McDonald's. Uh, I also enjoyed that. That was fun. Um, I did a, uh, out of high school, I did a summer job at the, uh, at, at a cement plant in Northern Michigan. Um, and that was like the the dirtiest of dirty jobs, uh, you know, Tyvek suit and respirators drop drop you into some silo that has been hasn't been cleaned out in a while with a with big tube hooked to a vacuum truck and just taking whatever's out of there. It it uh, can't see your hand in front of your face hardly. So, yeah, I've done a lot of really really uh, entry level uh, grunt work type jobs. That kind of stuff helps you out though. And you know, we were just on site with a um, a concrete producer here in Baltimore uh, doing some work. And when we were talking to the VP there, uh, he was saying that uh, he started the same way. You know, he he's one of those guys that came in entry level truck driver, did every job on the site that you could possibly do. And, and so as he's getting ready to ride off into the sunset and retire, you know, one of these years coming up, he, he's having to train the next uh, group behind him. And he's kind of done the same thing with those young guys. You know, he picked out a couple of guys and and said, you know, these are the hard workers. I think that's what a combination that, you know, we kind of touched on a little bit here, but it's going to take hard work. It doesn't matter if you've got the college degree or you don't have a college degree. You still have to put in the work. And then secondarily, having a mentor is a huge deal. And so, you know, I challenge anybody listening to this that's in upper management, say, you know, you got to identify those quality people and then show them the path and, and give them those skills like this concrete producer is doing now. And, and for him, he's saying, I'm going to do the I'm going to bring these guys up the way I was brought up. You know, I'm going to I'm going to make them run a loader. I'm going to make them run a concrete truck. I'm going to put them on the finishing crew. I'm going to have them shadow the pump guys. And then I'm going to bring them into the office and show them how to run the spreadsheets and, and teach them how to run a business and, and, and what to do and what not to do. And then let, let them out there. And, and that's a, that's a heck of a way to train some people, you know, uh, Ryan, is there, is there a program like that at Argos? Do y'all have any kind of uh, program where you bring up, you know, new managers and, and try and give them the skills they need to be successful? Sure. Yeah. I mean, we have, we have all kinds of programs in place and, and they're, they're very, they're adaptable depending on uh, what, what of our business uh, units that, that, that you're coming from and, and even what, where you're fitting in with the business. But, you know, we've had programs in the past and probably will continue to uh, uh, after COVID that you hire young people and, and, and you get them, you hire the, you hire the right personalities um, and then you, you move them around in the business um, so that they get a, 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 a broader sense of what this, what we do, um, and, and what the various different, uh, functions of our business, uh, what they do to impact the outcome, um, that we're looking for. Yeah. I mean, I see that even with our team, you know, our, our little group here, uh, we're more like entrepreneurs. And so that, that spirit within our, or within our division of our organization, taking something that when, uh, our team got here had uh, zero sales in concrete 
you know, when we got here in 2012, to grow that into what we've grown it into now, uh, it took a real entrepreneurial spirit. And so we had to get trained in marketing and we had to get trained in sales uh, along with our skills in concrete and learning some different things. So that experience has really driven us, uh, you know, so lab experience, field experience. Uh, what, what's critical to guys who are running a pump? What's critical guys who are finishing concrete? What's critical to the precast industry, to the dry cast industry? Uh, to, you know, what's the difference in formulating an SCC concrete versus formulating a standard concrete that's going to be between a four and an eight inch slump? Uh, you know, how does fiber impact your concrete? All, all these things we had to learn essentially on the fly. And, and so we were very fortunate to be given a concrete lab here at Active Minerals to get in there and get our hands dirty. And we learned so much in the lab and try to take that in the field and you learn what works and what doesn't work. And then beyond that, you learn what the customer thinks. You know, what is a concrete producer thinking? What is his customer thinking? What is the cement producer thinking? And what are their goals and, and their, their objectives? And so with everything that we've learned, you know, coming from our role as someone who's trying to help the industry from the outside, uh, you're on the inside of it, Ryan. And so when you look and you start to develop these new cements, you, you've got your own ideas and agenda as a cement producer. And when I say agenda, it doesn't, that's not a negative connotation. I mean, you've, sure. you've got things that you're trying to promote. But how do you focus your goals to align with your customers' goals? It's a good question because we tend we tend to lose focus of that in, 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 in our business. And your business is a little different in that if you don't focus on it, you're not going to have a business. You're not going to grow a business. I mean, we could we could we could muddle through in our business uh, not doing that. But what 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 we find is that the real value in our product is is the is the people and the services that surround the product that support the product. And so um, we have to we, we have to be considerate of the end user experience, um, sort of push that that understanding and knowledge back deep into our business so that the people who aren't on the front lines understand uh, what the experience is and, 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 and what we can do to improve the experience. So, so Ryan, speaking of all these uh, innovations to concrete, have you seen uh, any other innovations come across your desk lately uh, that we haven't really talked much about? Hmm. Yeah, I mean, there there are a lot of a lot of things out there. Of course, our business is very slow to adopt them, but but uh, I don't know if so much innovations as it is 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 some maybe some some resourcefulness and that uh, you know I'm seeing things you know talking about metacalin and things like that. There's a there's a real crisis going on with with regards to fly ash and supply. We're in the midst of another one uh, right now, currently in a lot of places. And, you know, we were we were on a call yesterday with the Florida DOT and they said we would accept ground glass as a pozzolan if you show us that it works um, and Medicalin and heck, we'll even we, we would even be willing to uh, entertain the idea of using grade 80 slag, which when when's the last time you heard somebody say that they use grade 80 slag? I've never heard anybody say that. But tell our people here, what is grade 80 slag and how's that different from your typical uh, ground glass furnace slag? Well, it's a, I mean, it is a ground granulated blast furnace slag. So it's the, it's the, it's the quench granules from a blast furnace uh, iron steel operation. The, the way you grade slag, and there's three, three grades that are stated in, in the ASTM C989, which is the standard for, for slag cement. It's grade 80, grade 100, and grade 120. And it's all based on uh, the amount of, of reactivity that you get from the material when you compare it to a, say, a reference cement in a 50-50 blend. And so historically, you, you're not going to see grade 80 specified anywhere, but, but I think you're going, going to start seeing that because even though it doesn't give you the benefit of strength, it still can give you the benefit of durability. And when you think about specifiers, they are incredibly concerned about durability. Durability is, is at the forefront of everything they do. You know, there is a technology I'm seeing that people are, are hungry for, but it doesn't seem like anybody can ever get it right. And, and that's waterproofing concrete. It seems like every, every contractor would love to be able to waterproof this concrete, uh, but, but nobody, nobody's really figured it out yet. So why, why is it, Ryan? Why does everybody want that waterproof concrete? You think we'll ever see it? I mean, yeah, it just again, it goes back to that. How much does it cost? 
um, and what's the benefit that you get if you, if you keep moisture out of out of concrete then you then you reduce the opportunity for bad things to get into the concrete to cause harm degradation you know durability related issues um, the issues tend to be that um, water the statement waterproofing it, 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 it tends to get uh, batted around a lot especially when you start talking to, to lawyers and things like that so you end up with you know resistant moisture resistant not moisture proof but you know, ultimately, the reason that it's such an important thing, and 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 you've seen a, you've seen a lot of products that that have that have been developed, and even new products coming to market, is that there is a, a lot of benefit to 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 having those types of technologies. Um, the reality of it is, though, that that uh, there's not a one size fits all solution. I, 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 I at least not that what I've seen, in that there are certain things that allow moisture water into concrete. Um, one is the, the is the paste and the paste matrix, right? The other is micro cracking. The other is macro cracking. Um, water waterproofing admixtures don't necessarily, not all of them necessarily, do anything for big cracks that open up. Um, if you're talking about uh, that kind of deal, let's say slabs and things like that, um, you know, you have joints. Those are just controlled cracks. So so there's a lot of different there's a lot of different things out there, and and there's a lot of things that that serve different purposes, but um, again, it's, there just doesn't seem to be a one size fits all. And it doesn't, it, because, and that's probably why your perception is they just can't seem to get it right. They, there isn't that one silver bullet that takes care of the problem universally. Yeah. You brought up something interesting. Uh, the joints in concrete slabs are, are controlled cracks. I remember uh, when we first learned that years ago, that was like one of those like light bulb moments, like, oh my gosh, all right, they figured it out that. The reason you got all this is so because concrete is going to crack and you're guaranteed of that now what makes it look the cracks look nice is if you control where it's going to crack <laughs> and so you go out there and you make these nice pretty joints and then you'll have your concrete uh, busting up on you as people walk in inside your hundred million dollar building that you just built of course i've also had people argue with me that that concrete does uh you know doesn't crack you know i've got you know, I have to go out and look at cracks a lot. Um, I still do even to this day, but I used to much more when I worked in ready mix and, and people would say, yeah, I'd say, well, concrete cracks and you didn't cut joints. And so you didn't control it. And they'd say, well, yeah, you know, my great uncle, you know, at his house, he had in his basement, it was it was 80 year old concrete. And there wasn't a single crack anywhere to be seen. Explain that. And I'd say, well, I can't. I'm sorry. Uh, hopefully it'll crack one day and my, my point will be valid to you. But <laughs> <laughs> that's terrible. Well, what about all these big, uh, long expanses that they're building now with this fiber technology? So fiber coming in and they, they said, hey, well, you put these fibers in here, you can uh, control all your cracking. You can have jointless concrete. What do you think about that? It's awesome. It's 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 a great it's a, it's great. And, and, and I don't think it's just being driven with fibers, but there's there's also uh, shrinkage reducing additives. Um, uh, even you even see a little bit of say say type K additives where you get ex some expansive properties in concrete. Um, joints are a liability. Again, they're a liability for many reasons. In warehouses, it's it's a great opportunity for hard wheeled traffic to to essentially just just have a, a lot of impact on those joints and just make them fall apart. And exterior concrete. You know, you've got entry points for things like chlorides and, and other nasty things that are that, that can potentially cause harm to your concrete. So they are very legit. They've gotten more and more complex over the years. And that when, when I first started doing putting macro fibers and shrinkage reducing admixtures into concrete, it was it was sort of a rule of thumb thing. We put these in here and it's going to reduce. But now you see these different companies that offer these products. They're, they're actually offering some engineering services uh, so that that you can become much more precise with 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 how far out can you spread joints um, or what is the impact of adding more fiber or this type of fiber or this type of shrinkage reducing admixture uh, component or this this you know uh, combination of, of of materials and so it's it's a good way to reduce the amount of, of exposure points for concrete to to potentially uh, have problems i got i got one other question for you uh, before, uh, before we wrap this up, the guys might have questions too, but I've got one more for you from a technology standpoint. So with, with all these different kind of concrete formulations and things we're adding to it, uh, the one that to me that has always seemed like it, it could do great, and I think other researchers feel the same way, guys who are more academic minded, but for some reason it hasn't translated to the field, 
is self-consolidated concrete. The ability to to pour in one spot and have it self-level to reduce your impact on labor. You know, the, the thing, it all sounds magical and the mixes sometimes look phenomenal. And so what has limited, what have you seen that has limited the growth of SEC concrete in major construction? Well, I think two things. One is one is economics. Um, it's 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 very costly. If you're go, if you if you're going to as a concrete producer produce self-consolidating concrete, you're going to get a lot of material cost in making the concrete in in, in cementitious material and in, in admixtures. The other issue is the challenge in trolling concrete properties from a concrete batch plant to a job site. Uh, we can we can QA it, we can get it right at the slump rack, we can make sure it's it's what it needs to be, then we drive it 30 minutes and, and it doesn't do what it's supposed to do because it's not SCC anymore. So now you have to have somebody chasing trucks and either adding admixtures or just letting the driver and the contractor figure out what the heck they're going to do with it, which, you know, they'll add water. Um, which is why, which is why you precast concrete seems to be the, the place where, where it adds the most value, um, because they're a controlled operation. They have, they have uh, high efficiency pan mixers at these places. They, they have very, very short, uh, trip times from, from the batch plant to the casting beds and they provide very obvious value in that they, they aid with consolidation and placement. Uh, you end up with a good finished product. They can help with very, uh, very difficult geometries. You see a lot of different types of, of shapes of things being cast. So, so SECs make a lot of sense um, as opposed to maybe a, a rectangular wall that, that, you know, doesn't, it, it's, you know, more or less a straight run. It, it may be more advantageous to just place you know, concrete with high range water reducer in it. It's cheaper. Um, it does help to, it does benefit as far as placement and consolidation. And, and it's not a quite as hard of a technology to uh, control. And speaking of precast forms, I just saw um, a new form got promoted just recently and it was a massive precast uh, form. And it was, it was a beautiful looking thing. And, you know, when they unjacked that form, it, it had an entire staircase just perfectly molded right there and, and so they were saying you know do precast stairs just a few at a time and they're just talking about an entire flight of stairs at a time and precast the whole thing and send those to the site and I, you know i thought that was that was pretty interesting that someone actually took the time a company thought you know this would really speed up construction on site and, and it's not that people haven't done precast stairs in the past it's just not a mass thing it's just like one project every couple of years will think to do it and now it looks like the industry, you know, a big player in the industry has gone out and said, you know what, uh, let's try and gas stairs out there. I, you know, that was pretty, a uh, pretty neat piece of innovation. Yeah, I mean, we have a we have a customer, a, a precast customer that created a a a, a flooring system, uh, mid-rise buildings uh, that is essentially a monolithic uh, setup. They do high-strength concrete, and it is more or less an SCC. They place the concrete, they put a cage uh, of reinforcing steel, and you can even see the conduit and duct work and, and everything is sort of into that. And then they let it they let it harden. They have a machine that picks it up the next day and flips it over and then places the concrete, places it into fresh concrete on the other side. So you end up with a sandwiched panel, which is the floor of one uh, of, of, of one area, it's the ceiling of, of the other area, and you have the conduit and the plumbing and everything's already stubbed into it. So they just create these things and you can just set them on site and then just cast, uh, uh, you, I think they cast like a, like, a, like a thin grout or something over them. And uh, so it's a really interesting, they, they spent millions of dollars developing this technology and, and, and they've spent a lot of money promoting the technology as well. That, that's awesome, and uh, looks like Joey had to step away. But I think we're actually coming up our time our time limit here for where we try to sit. Josh, do you have any other questions for our esteemed guest? Completely unrelated. I always assume you were always a southeast guy, but you mentioned working at a cement plant in Michigan. Where are you actually from? Uh, I'm from Michigan. No kidding. I didn't know that. I just always assume you were from the southeast somewhere. Well, I, sh- I shed the accent years ago. Uh, <laughs> I don't I don't say a boot anymore. All right. Is it soda or pop for you? Well, it's, it, it, these days it's Coke. 
uh, everything's Coke because I, yeah. I, I, I moved to a place in Indiana and that's what they referred it to. But growing up, it was pop. Pap. Yeah. We used to drink the Fago. <laughs> nice. Nice. All right, man. I, I don't have anything else to, to ask you, Ryan. But as always, we appreciate your time on here, man. It's always a pleasure, guys. Thanks for having me again. And, and, and maybe, uh, Lord willing, maybe a third time. We'll see. Yeah, man. You always make us smarter and our audience smarter. So we appreciate you, brother. Have a good day. All right. Take care, guys. All right, man. See you. Okay, that's going to do it for this version of the Add 10 Gallons Concrete Podcast. Uh, thanks again for Ryan Betts. And, and Paul said it perfectly. Every time he talks to us, we get smarter. And uh, we certainly appreciate his presence here on the podcast. I uh, want to remind you as the listener that uh, we are also present on Facebook and Instagram. Just go search us by typing in Add 10. Uh, our content will pop up there. For the Facebook page and the Instagram page, we have the video version of our Skype chat with Ryan and all of our podcast guests on there. Little uh, snippets of the interview that we put out there for promotional items, uh, things that we find uh, entertaining, funny, interesting, so on and so forth. And uh, that'll promo the next episode upcoming for us. Also, go rate the podcast, uh, give us a five-star rating, tell your friends about us, go download, subscribe, and help us boost that uh, viewership that we're uh, growing each and every episode. And we certainly appreciate you being along for this episode and be on the lookout for our next episode coming soon.